Coming up today, Natasha looks into Uber's robo-firings, Matt Burgess charts the grim rise of stalkerware, and Vicky explains why there might not be signs of life on Venus after all. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me this week are Vicky Turk. Hello. Matt Burgess. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when it was revealed that up to 80% of current COVID-19 infections across the UK were likely imported from a super spreader event amongst agricultural workers in Spain. Genetic analysis of the virus across Europe has revealed huge numbers of cases were imported from Spain in June and July. The UK does not currently conduct any COVID-19 screening at its borders. This was also the week when US senators grilled tech bosses Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook, Jack Dorsey from Twitter and Sundar Pichai from Google over censorship and misinformation during a hearing about Section 230, a piece of legislation that concerns platforms' liability for user-generated content. It was also a week when Spotify faced growing criticism over its ownership of the Joe Rogan podcast. Rogan allowed conspiracy theorist Alex Jones on his show and discussed topics such as mask wearing and vaccines. Spotify, which banned Jones's podcast more than two years ago, didn't comment on his appearance. And finally this week, the BBC has issued new guidance on social media usage, which will force staff to maintain impartiality. Employees will be told not to express a personal opinion on matters of public policy, politics or controversial subjects, even on their personal Twitter accounts. Vicky, I was very relieved that you correctly pronounced Sundar Pichai's name. I think that the highlight of the three hour long, slightly weird grilling um, of tech bosses was pretty much every single senator getting the name wrong there was a variety it's, it's I think. not a difficult name it's really not but you could you could see them that they, they they were aware that they were going to have to say his name and they sort of panicked and some of them called him pikai or just sort of said it really quickly a couple of them got it right um but yeah you wouldn't think it would be a if you know that you're going to be interviewing someone just look up how to say their name and b it's not that hard uh never mind what did you learn this week matt burgess Uh, This week, I learned about the longest entry in the Oxford English Dictionary, um, which is 60,000 words long, the entire entry, that is. Um, And it belongs to the verb set, S-E-T. There are 430 different senses in the dictionary of different use cases for it, such as sunset, other ones that I've forgotten. (laughs) (laughs) 60,000 words, that's like a book in itself. Yeah, like it's, set could um, have its own dictionary. Basically, basically, yeah, it's um, this was from the sort of like nineteen eighty nine on uh, version of the dictionary, but um, apparently it still stands as being the longest one because language changes, but maybe not that much. That is an excellent fact, Natasha. What did you learn this week? I learned that roller coasters were inspired by people in Russia who used to shoot down icy hills on their sleds. 
The first roller coaster in the world was unveiled in Paris in 1817. It was called the Promenade Alien, or the Aerial Walk, and passengers would walk up a set of stairs to ride a bench down the 600-foot track at 40 miles an hour, and there were no brakes, they had no concept of safety. Today, the tallest roller coaster is 456 feet tall. So, so back in 1817, there was a 600-foot tall roller coaster with no brakes. Yeah. Uh, the, the whole health and safety thing came a bit later. People just thought it was fun. Evidently. Vicky, what did you learn this week? So I have a fact that's sort of a bit Halloween-y themed, um, but I've also got a bit of a question for our listeners within it. So I learned this week about the Black Diamond, which is a cultivar of apple that is black in colour, so very spooky looking. It's supposedly grown only in one very specific part of Tibet, and it's actually sort of a very deep purple in colour. Uh, so apparently it requires very specific environmental factors to grow, making it very rare and expensive and not something that people are actually that keen to grow because it's, it's really difficult to do so and not very cost effective. Um, but here's the thing. So someone shared this fact with me and I've been trying to kind of verify it and look it up. And the Black Diamond Apple has a, a Wikipedia page and I have found reference to it on various websites but I really can't find much more information about it at all. Nothing on any English language botanical sites or in any science papers. So if anyone listening knows more or perhaps you've actually seen one in the flesh or you've come across them in a book or something, let me know. Or if I am perhaps just being punked by my friend who first told me about this, also let me know. Podcast.wire.co.uk if you've come across the spooky <laughs> black diamond apple it does look really cool, but so, you know, when you, when you look at it, yeah, and it's like, there are images of it, but they kind of look photoshopped because you're not used to seeing a purple black apple, right? So then I was sort of thinking, maybe it is photoshopped, but I don't think it is, but I'm not sure. So I just want to kind of like solve this once and for all. Is this apple so rare that there's little information out about it? I don't know podcast.wire.co.uk hopefully we can solve the mystery next week with uh, a follow-up fact saying whether it's real or not um i learned it's not really a fact but it's definitely something that made me smile so there's a scottish football club called inverness caledonian thistle and they recently announced that they were going to be using an ai controlled camera to live stream home games to season ticket holders who can't attend the matches due to coronavirus so the ai is trained to follow the ball so fans can watch the action without the club needing to hire a camera operator. The only problem is that in a match last Saturday, the AI camera kept on mistaking a bald-headed linesman for the ball. So the, ca- the, the camera's following the action, the ball's being passed around, there's just about to be a chance in the penalty area, and then all of a sudden the linesman runs along the line a bit, the camera gets confused and pans and zooms in on his head. And it happened over and over and over again. It's absolutely hilarious. A bunch of websites have written about it. Go and look up the video. It'll probably make you smile too. Um, something else that will make you smile is our super special subscription offer for podcast listeners, Seamless. You can get the current issue of Wired magazine for the ludicrously low introductory price of one British pound. You then get the next six issues for the low, low price of 19 pounds. That's more than a year of brilliant Wired journalism for just 20 quid. This is a limited time offer, although I'm aware it's been on the podcast for a while now, so we should probably stop it, and is only available to people in the UK. If you love the podcast and want to support what we do, then why not give the magazine a try? Head to wired.uk forward slash pod sub one. Matt Burgess, what's that URL? 
The URL is wyatt.uk forward slash pod sub one. Thank you very much. Our first story this week, Natasha, is about Uber's robo firings. Yeah, so a group of former Uber drivers have accused the ride-hailing company of using automated robo-firing algorithms against them to dismiss them without appeal. Now, that sounds super futuristic, but it isn't. Um, This week, I spoke to three UK drivers who say that they tried to log into the platform to start their shifts and found that they were blocked. Uber's all-powerful algorithm, which governs who gets rides and how much they're paid, had detected a continued pattern of improper use, and the company had decided to bar them from the system. So these people claim that they not only abruptly lost their their livelihoods, but that they were labelled as fraudsters and were not given a reason why or a way to appeal the decision at any point. Two of the drivers who are based in London were later contacted by TfL, which is Transport for London, the regulator, and asked to give a reason for them to not have their licences revoked a moment that their union representatives have described as Kafkaesque. So So they're stuck in hell. What are they going to do about Mm. it? Well, so this week, they and a fourth driver from Portugal have launched a legal claim in the Netherlands, which is where Uber's data is based. And they argue that the court should overrule the algorithm that caused the drivers to be dismissed and force Uber to share the information that it gathered about them and used to fire them in the first place. They're arguing, basically, you fired me. Um, you've said that you, you're not going to give me a reason um, under GDPR. Um, I don't have any reason to give TfL or any other regulator that asks me why I've been labelled a fraudster. You won't tell me. I don't know. I can't tell them. I might lose my, lose my licence and you were able to kick me off the platform and I can't appeal. So that's their, their basic premise at the moment. Now, this lawsuit is the first of its kind that's been filed under the General Data Protection Regulations Article 22. So GDPR, which was introduced with great fanfare by the European Union in 2018, protects user data and allows European citizens to demand information if they feel an automated decision was made about them. If these people are successful, an avalanche of other legal claims will likely follow. The App Drivers and Couriers Union, which is bringing the legal challenge on behalf of these four drivers, says that since 2018, it's seen well over a thousand individual cases where drivers have allegedly been wrongly accused of fraudulent activity and immediately had their accounts terminated without a right of appeal. So the ADCU points to Uber's community guidelines, which define fraud to include a huge amount of different things, including declining work offered and strategically logging out to await higher surge pricing as well as faking your own identity, trying to charge passengers extra money for no real reason, picking up packages and keeping them. All sorts of things are under that fraud um, guideline. So if you have a about an hour to read through them, please do. Um, it's quite interesting reading. The union has accused Uber of undercutting its obligation to drivers' working rights by concealing performance-related dismissals as fraud-related dismissals. So one of them, for example, uh, was telling me that um, in Birmingham, you can accept, um, this is a quirk, actually, it's only only in Birmingham, not in London or any other market in the UK, you can look at um, a request from someone who wants to take an Uber. And you can tell uh, by accepting that request quite quickly, if it's worth your while. And what he was saying was a lot of the time it isn't. So you'll take a look and you'll see what fee you're going to be paid as a, as a driver. You'll see how long you're going to be driving. And you can quickly calculate whether it's worth your while to do it or not. What he was saying that he, he thinks that he's been um, disqualified and broken and, and sort of taken away from the app because um, he kept on turning down things that didn't make sense for him to accept. 
So like uh, different rides that he thought were not worth his while, he would turn them down and then suddenly he was kicked off the platform. That's why he thinks this happened to him. So London drivers, though, are in a worse situation because they're given 14 days to explain why they should keep their licences to TfL once TfL gets in touch with them. But when they don't know what they're accused of or why, it's very difficult for them to defend themselves. Um, in other places in the UK, there's not as stringent rules as there are in London because TfL as those of you who've been following Uber's situation in London for some time now will know, has been very actively engaged in um, regulating and trying to push Uber to provide more data um, and better safety quality to people using the service. And as you say, this is uh, all about sort of one part uh, in in terms of law, it's all about um, Article 22, which is part of GDPR, which is around uh, sort of automated decision making and profiling um, and it's one of the areas that is very much sort of untested around uh, the use of the law in this case um, and it's going to be sort of very interesting to see how uh, that unravels because as we use uh, more algorithms for sort of automated processing it's going to be even more um, more crucial that there are sort of clearly defined rules around this um, but obviously sort of that's the driver's perspectives but on the on the other hand what what does uber say about its role in this because it is the uh, body that is doing the uh, the processing of the data. Yeah, so for Uber, it's a really, really difficult situation because um, it's, it's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, really. It has to kind of improve um, safety. It has to make sure that the people who are taking other people in their cars are the right people. And uh, there's lots and lots, thousands of drivers, basically, they have to deal with all the time, lots of moving parts. Of course, uh, this algorithm that they're using as, as sort of the, the centrepiece of the entire operation is an important part of making sure all that runs smoothly. So, so Uber was basically saying that it gives explanations when it cannot provide certain data. So if it can't give drivers the exact reason why they've been dismissed, it will try to at least point to the right place in the community guidelines so they have some kind of explanation. Um, but there are some times when it can't. So when it doesn't exist they were saying, or disclosing it would infringe on the rights of another person under GDPR. So uh, Uber said um, in response to this uh, claim that was launched against them that as part of its regular processes, the drivers in this case were only deactivated after manual reviews by our specialist team. Now, this is a really um, important point because this is the point that's going to be argued in court once this uh, claim gets heard. Um, These drivers are claiming that it's, it's the amount of interaction that a human has with this algorithm that matters. If you have someone who's copy-pasting a message that the algorithm is churning up, that's not exactly what one could count as human interaction. And so that's, that's their, basically their argument. They're saying, we received automated messages, uh, we didn't receive any interaction from a human being, and therefore you can't say that the manual review had taken place. Uber, on the other hand, is saying, you know, we, we do review a lot of these um, cases and you know, they're reviewed by human beings, not just by the algorithm. We don't let the algorithm make decisions like this by itself. Um, So at the the moment, though, Uber is under a massive amount of pressure and the reliance on the algorithm is is going to have to continue. Last year, it lost its licence in London, which is the core city for its European operations, after TfL found that over 14,000 of its trips 
taken with drivers who had faked their own identity on the firm's app. The security lapse, which involved 43 drivers who have all since lost their licence, save two who didn't have a licence in the first place, uh, were not detected up until up until a year after those rides had happened. So it, it was a long time lapse where you know a lot of people could have been put at risk for no real reason. And Uber's responsibility um, under their licensing conditions is to try to keep people as safe as possible. And it is reasonable to expect that if they think that someone is misbehaving on the platform, that they should just stop it immediately. Um, Uber, incidentally, won an appeal to extend its license by 18 months in September of this year. So it's still very much um, on, on, it's still in the spotlight, really. It's, it can't be seen to be shirking um, its responsibilities on this front for passengers. So Uber drivers complaining about how the algorithm works is hardly new. Um, something we hear about quite regularly, isn't it? Um, where, where did things go from here? Yeah, so the situation, unfortunately, has gotten much worse. So as you say, Vicky, drivers have long complained about the opaque nature of Uber's algorithm, which decides you know, who gets jobs, how much they're remunerated, and rates driver profiles on matters such as inappropriate behaviour and late arrivals, all which information they say they can't access, so they don't know how it's being rated or what the logic is behind it. Um, Now, uh, it's it's interesting because throughout this pandemic, um, the union for these drivers has said that this situation has got far worse. So Uber had had implemented last year as part of its licensing negotiations um, some biometric measures to um, make drivers basically verify their identity um, at any time uh, so that they could ensure passenger safety. Uh, Since those measures were implemented, the union says that uh, things have gotten a lot worse, that a lot more dismissals have been happening. Um, there's, There's another side of things to this though as well because drivers are being incentivized in different ways so there's been a long uh, list of complaints from drivers about them seeing uber clawing more um, fees from them uh, getting a bigger percentage cut of every single ride that they take uh, this this kind of situation has kind of reached a peak slightly. So drivers are being incentivized through a membership tier system, which is relatively new. This is just the essential part of it is the more rides that you accept, the more points that you earn. So drivers can go from being a blue member driver to a gold or diamond status, depending on how many rides they accept. But they're saying this, this entire system is completely rigged. So one of the drivers in this claim argues that you can be terminated from the platform if you cancel rides that are not worth the money. So if you are in a gold status and you want to keep that status, you have to carry on accepting percentages of your rides that are offered to you. Otherwise, you lose your status, you lose the perks, um, and you might you know, be penalised by the algorithm. That's, that's basically the, the argument at the moment. All of this, by the way, is hugely opaque. Uh, Uber does not share information about the way its algorithm thinks. So it's really difficult to know how much of this is drivers um, finding a lot more competition on the streets because there's thousands more drivers all the time um, adding themselves to the Uber platform, especially during the pandemic when there's little jobs elsewhere or how much of it is the actual algorithm sort of playing God almost with the people on its site. So, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting situation at the moment because, as I said before, they're, they're hugely under pressure by, you know, TfL specifically um, in Europe. They can't necessarily afford to lose um, their licence in London. Again, it's a really key city for them in Europe. Um, and, and so this biometric um, status of drivers is a really important thing. But 
TfL is kind of being brought into this slightly uh, through, through this court case because uh, the union is basically saying TfL is slightly complicit in its dismissal process because it pushed Uber to do this real-time verification as part of its London licensing terms, which caused Uber, they say, to rush flawed technology and worsen the existing problem, which is fought by the claim launched this week. So it's a really interesting situation um, where you can see sort of a real-life problem launching itself from just using an algorithm um, and debating whether it's the algorithm or people making the decision. So, yeah, to be continued, I guess. There was, um, like, part of the, the sort of controversy around the A-levels exam situation that we were talking about multiple times on the on the podcast previously uh, was there were sort of questions around whether that was uh, automated profiling under Article uh, Article 22 of GDPR in the same sort of way. Um, and this was never resolved because uh, the government did the U-turns around um, the uh, actual sort of algorithm and its use. But there were people saying that the government's decision was solely automated it, it would have uh, fell under the protections of article 22 uh, and then there were sort of like people on the other side of the fence saying that actually uh, the government this was on the other side of the fence um saying that there were people involved in the decision making but uh, so article 22's protections couldn't apply um and it's sort of this particular area of gdpr is one that is quite uh, interesting as we get a lot more uh, automation and ai and everything being used uh, within the world and the systems around us uh, but as you, as you say it's largely untested at the moment yeah it's interesting because obviously the drivers who spoke to me and the drivers launching this claim have said that they are completely innocent that obviously they're not fraudsters they're saying that you know that whatever uber is accusing them of is completely false but obviously uber um it, it still has the responsibility to find people who are misusing the platform so i think the crux of this issue will de- will definitely be sort of how much intervention do people actually have in what this algorithm decides um, how much responsibility falls to Uber to make sure that the algorithm is making the right decision because these people the people I was speaking to that from one moment to the next they lost their income we're not talking about you know something that that you have a buffer necessarily especially during a crisis situation now where you find yourself perhaps not just losing your job at Uber but maybe losing your entire license and, and this could quite quickly escalate into being a situation where a computer's decided that you're in the wrong no one's checking it um, and and the information that TfL has perhaps isn't sufficient to reverse that decision and you might find yourself you know without any income whatsoever no license not being able to operate for no real reason except for a computer error and that's that's a really um, interesting situation that these people find themselves in I say interesting it's, it's horrible if, if they're not guilty of anything so um, it's it's a weird scenario though where it unlike the government situation that you were talking about Matt it's it's a private company and a lot of what it will come down to is them saying this is proprietary information we can't necessarily share our algorithm and the way it works because it's not really fair to us to do that Um, and it's not fair especially as this problem isn't just um, something that uber is contending with it's all ride hailing platforms they all have problems with their data and their safety and control over um, people who work for them even though they're not employees uh, as, as such so yeah a really big issue I was going to say, you managed to get through a whole story about Uber without mentioning that none of these people are actually employed by Uber, but then right there at the end. And the other thing to add to this is the the opaqueness of the algorithm. Um, I read a story, I think it was a couple of years ago, um, and again, it was a a union that had brought it to light. 
um, drivers were trying to understand how the algorithm made decisions. So they were doing experiments effectively, which is maybe again against Uber's terms and conditions, but they were getting someone to get into the back of their Uber and order another Uber. And rather than the Uber that they were sitting in getting the next ride, it would go to someone who was a 10 minute drive away. Um, and they kept on repeating the experiment to, to build up more data and understand. But there are all these people who aren't employed by Uber, whose livelihoods are determined by the decisions made by an algorithm. And they, they're, the algorithm's thought process, as you put it, Natasha, is completely opaque. And this is the really sharp end of this when people lose, well, not their jobs because they're not employed, but they lose their ability to make money on Uber's platform. And it'll be really interesting to say, as you were talking about, Matt, if GDPR is good enough, if the regulation is strong enough to force these companies to, well, not comply, but to be more transparent about how they operate. It's a really, really fascinating story. I, I imagine, as with all lawsuits involving Uber, we're going to be talking about this for years, right? Natasha, a decision it isn't going to appear in a few months will be old and grey no. by the time this makes it through. Yeah, and, and uh, this isn't going to be the end. I mean, obviously, these are all uh, test cases that are being launched against Uber. Obviously, you've got the, someone from Portugal and three people from um, from the UK. So uh, it, is, it is a really interesting situation and it probably will be sort of years to come. And I think they will have to grapple with, with Uber saying, look, you know, it's, it's unfair for us to have to reveal all of this information, which is you know, proprietary knowledge and a competition issue as well. So it's going to be gnarly and it's going to be interesting. And I think, um, especially given the situation with Uber in, in London specifically, where they've got sort of an 18-month reprieve-style uh, temporary licence, this, this safety issue is not going to go away. And the I think the risk here is that if this technology has been rushed, if the union is right and it has been rushed and, and people are being dismissed uh, for no reason, that this could go unchecked for a long, long time and um, a lot of innocent people might suffer the consequences of that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely quite sad, a situation. Podcast at wired.co.uk has all of the negative press and there's been a lot of it around Uber. Has it made you think twice about using the platform? Are you using it differently? Are you asking different questions of how you use gig economy companies? Podcast at Wired. .co.uk. Let us know your thoughts on that story or anything else that we talk about on the podcast this week. Our second story, Matt Burgess, is about the continued rise of stalkerware. This week we were reporting on wired.co.uk yeah, around the rise and some of the efforts to tackle um, the problem of stalkerware. So during lockdown, um, the use of this type of technology has soared. Um, so analysis from uh, cybersecurity company Avast has revealed that in the UK, uh, there were some of the biggest increases in the use of stalkerware as the pandemic took hold over the sort of early months of uh, this year and sort of like March to, to March, March to June this year, um, there was an 83% rise in detections of this type of stalkerware compared to the first three months. Um, and uh, that's higher in the UK than other areas around the world. Um, so the UK was only behind Japan and Germany out of 12 countries and analysed around data uh, of increases in stalkerware. Um, and this isn't just one company saying this. Uh, so multiple uh, companies that are tracking the, this type of technology uh, also report similar rises. So uh, Malwarebytes, another cybersecurity company, um, said it had seen detections between January and June around the world uh, rise 780%, while a, dip, a slightly different type of 
broader classification of spyware uh, soared by 1600% around the world. Um, and there's also been new types of stalkerware discovered over the last few months of this year. Um, and this sort of is coupled um, in time uh, alongside sort of a rise of uh, domestic, domestic abuse and violence and calls to helplines dealing with these types of issues. Now, when we talk about stalkerware, what specifically are we talking about or is it not a specific thing it's sort of a general class of applications right yeah so there are a few sort of definitions around stalkerware and spyware uh, and sort of monitoring apps but they all sort of like largely fall under the same sort of uh, mode of operating but when we're talking about stalkerware specifically uh, this is more in common with uh, apps that are installed on people's phones, um, mostly in in relationships between people uh, in, in taking part in in relationships that um, are largely consensual. However, as as sort of alluding to, this is obviously a type of uh, sort of control or ab- abusive use of technology um, that is often uh, most often sort of used uh, by men in relationships so research has shown that uh, stalkerware is often uh, used two-thirds by male uh, perpetrators and one-third by uh, female perpetrators in relationships uh, and when we're talking about this specifically we're talking about apps that are often covertly installed uh, and can be used to track uh, everything that somebody does on a phone so they can work by uh, sending every uh, every keyboard uh, interaction, every swipe, every use of an app, etc., uh, done back to another phone, which um, which through the web essentially. Um, and these types of monitoring apps, just to give you a bit of a, a bit of a sense of what the sort of capabilities they're doing, because it really is quite uh, horrific. Um, they give uh, abusive partners sort of extraordinary levels of surveillance and control over the people that um, have put their trust in them and, and, and decided to be in relationships with them. Android phones are a lot more vulnerable than iPhones due to the sort of like open source nature of Android as a platform itself. But iPhones, it's still possible if phones are jailbroken uh, and something like that. So in the reporting this week, we uh, we looked at uh, one one particular person uh, who we call Belinda, but that's not actually uh, her name. And her abusive ex-partner was able to uh, repeat word for word conversations she'd had with family via her phone. Um, She was worried that he seemed to know where she was all the time. Her battery ran low, her phone ran low on battery because it was constantly sort of uh, refreshing and and sending this data elsewhere. Um, And the phone was hot to touch because of of that as well. Um, And it seemed like at times her phone would glitch um, going back the home screen and notifications would disappear basically because they were being seen uh, by her abusive partner Um, and sort of in testing around this um, one uh, security expert at Malwarebytes did a did a sort of like test example just to show uh, sort of what these these apps can do and um, he found that they could stream video and and live audio from his phone his phone conversations were recorded texts and deleted photos were visible locations and movements were tracked um, and his home stream home screen could be live streamed by the perpetrator um, and that was an example uh, but obviously this type of technology as we sort of alluded to at the top with all the stats is being used on a on a daily basis by people to uh, to control uh, and abuse uh, their, their partners 
This is just really, really horrible. And you can imagine how that develops during the pandemic when you might already be under someone else's control in an abusive relationship if you're stuck at home. And the only escape that you have might be your phone that's being monitored all the time. So, but but this all of this isn't new. I mean, this is stuff that we, we've been hearing about for some time now, especially people using social media, Facebook, etc., and, and messaging other people on your behalf and impersonating you. All, all that kind of stuff has it's been around for a, a bit. What exactly is being done about it to stop it from happening? Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Um, well, but a couple of really good points there around sort of like the the overall sort of uh, abuse and, and uh, levels of control of things, uh, domestic abuse and violence uh, rising during lockdown, but also just the prevalence of this type of technology. Um, and over the last couple of years, really, sort of the uh, cybersecurity industry and law enforcement uh, have been starting to take this a lot more seriously, um, including during the pandemic when there have been... Uh, the numbers of threats uh, increasing. Um, so there are largely sort of three different groups uh, that are tackling or trying to tackle some of this problem. So as I said, the cybersecurity industry, the, the civil society, charities, NGOs, etc., cetera, uh, and also law enforcement. But one of the big problems is we don't really know about the scale, the true scale of the, the use of these types of apps. So while security companies can use antivirus technology to find stalkerware uh, on phones, um, there's not I mean, there's not a huge amount of people that have antivirus apps and stuff installed on their phones. Um, and definitely, obviously not everybody does so. So um, the numbers that we cited earlier really are sort of like the tip of the iceberg in terms of increases. Um, in September 2020, so this year, just just a month ago, uh, Google actually banned Stalkerware from its uh, Android Play Store for the first time, uh, which is quite um, shocking that it took so long really to do so explicitly. Um, and in the sort of law enforcement space, prosecutions are pretty slim, but slowly increasing. So uh, again, last month, a man in the UK was handed a two year uh, suspended prison sentence as part of a conviction that um, he uh, installed a tracking device on his victim's phone. Uh, there were other elements to that case as well, but that was one element of it that was drawn out of it. And, and part of this comes down to there is no direct law that tackles stalkerware and spyware itself. So there are there are uh, existing laws in the UK around stalkerware uh, around stalking and that types of behavior which make these things illegal but when it comes specifically to technology quite often the the 30 year old computer misuse act is used as part of prosecutions around this um and sort of so we're starting to see um more people in the legal space calling for greater sort of changes around this and, and re-evaluation of the law to keep up with technology as as is is often the case in many areas the the law lacks behind what is capable of happening so in july the national police chiefs council in the uk acknowledged that there had been a rise in digital stalking and these types of apps during lockdown um and it said that it's trying to take it very seriously uh, as well as working with uh with victims and and innocent uh innocent parties in this to try and sort of like stamp out and realize the problem uh, and individual police forces themselves uh, are sort of taking it a bit more seriously as well so Hampshire Constabulary here in the UK as well is working with sort of clinical experts legal experts and also um, uh, also groups that are involved uh, tackling incidents of stalking to try and get a handle on some of this and it's not just those law enforcement bodies that are, are starting to take this more seriously a lot of the work in this space it should be said comes from uh, from uh, groups that are either charities or, or other uh, victim support groups that are trying to deal with this so in the story that we're 
reported, we were talking um, to Refuge, which is a specific tech team that has uh, sort of handled some of these cases. And, and they helped uh, in the example I gave of Belinda by helping to remove all this stuff from the phone, getting burner devices, sort of identifying this uh, type of use of technology and its abuse and really trying to uh, sort of make more people aware of it and how you can uh, sort of detect and tell the signs that this is happening. So um, it's something that we have known about for for a while, but it is uh, at this stage, promisingly, despite the uh, rising cases, there is actually sort of work being done to really try and uh, sort of tackle this problem in a, in a serious and, um, and considered way. What are the best steps for people to take if they're concerned that this kind of software might be being used against them, how can they try and find out what's the safest way to go about getting rid of it or or getting help and support? What advice can you give? Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Um, and I think that uh, obviously sort of people's safety is a really important thing within this. And if you are in this sort of situation or know somebody who may be in this situation, there may also be other uh, factors at play in terms of sort of domestic abuse or violence or things like that. So considering um, the safest way to reach out and uh, to get help is, is something that is should sort of definitely be at front of mind. But places like Refuge are very uh, very good at sort of like handling these things very safely, securely and, and sort of have helplines and, and places that people can reach out to in this. And we'll put some details in the show notes um, around some of that as well. Um, so I think it's going going to places that have experience of this um, to, to help out can definitely be one thing. But as the sort of like things I've mentioned, particularly around devices, if your phone is maybe not behaving in the way you would expect it to behave, this could be a sign of uh, having some stalkerware on there. If it is, if the battery's going down a lot if it's running really hot all the time um then then at least consider this type of thing maybe there but i think the main thing to do for people is to, is to reach out in a safe and secure way uh when, whenever possible and as soon as possible it's a grim but fascinating story and as you say matt there's some really important work being done to get on top of this rise and it's good to see that different parties are trying to get together and make a difference podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that story or anything else on the show this week third and final story a few weeks ago you might remember big headlines about the potential signs of life on venus well now it turns out that that may not quite be true vicky yeah, so I think we actually covered it on the podcast as well, um, a Matt Reynolds' story, I believe. Uh, there was a lot of excitement in the scientific community about a paper that suggested it may have found life on Venus, uh, which was very surprising because we've always thought, you know, if we were to find life on a planet in our solar system that wasn't Earth, it would probably be Mars. Um, so this was quite exciting news. And in the paper, astronomers reported finding a gas called phosphine in the clouds around Venus. And because phosphine can be made through biological processes, this, they said, could be a sign of life on Venus. It was naturally very big news, but now other scientists are starting to look deeper into the results and there's some scepticism over whether we really have found a sign of life. I suppose that's maybe not surprising when you think this is a planet that's very, very far away. We're looking at it from a distance. The data might not be as clear as some people are suggesting or hoping. So what was wrong in the paper and what was wrong in the data potentially? Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, not necessarily anything. You know, it could be that all the results in the paper and everything is correct. 
there's a few things going on here. Um, so first, just to recap uh, about the original paper, it was published in Nature Astronomy, which is a very respected, peer-reviewed journal. And to be fair, the authors don't kind of come out and say, we have found life on Venus. Um, you know, if you look at the paper, they put forward their findings of the phosphine gas, and they suggest that, in their words, this could originate from unknown photochemistry or geochemistry or by analogy with biological production of phosphine on Earth from the presence of life. So they're kind of hedging their bets in the paper, um, despite, you know, the headlines kind of running with the whole uh, Venus has life headline. Um, On to the controversy. The first question is whether there actually is phosphine in the clouds above Venus. And you know, this is because it's actually really tricky to do this kind of science. It's not as simple as sort of sticking a piece of litmus paper up there or something and seeing if it comes back positive or negative. The finding comes from data collected by the James Clark Maxwell Telescope and the Atacama Large Millimeter Array of Telescopes. And it basically involves a lot of complex mathematical processing of loads and loads of data. And that's what's given rise to this phosphine signal. So there's some disagreement over what method should be used to process this data. And one new study, which has not yet been peer-reviewed, it's, it's on a preprint server, used a different approach on the ALMA data from the Atacama Large Millimeter Array Telescopes and did not get the phosphine results. So they got something different. Yet another paper, also preprint, a comment article that hasn't yet gone through review, suggests that the phosphine result could actually be caused by another gas and maybe it's just been misinterpreted and it's actually sulfur dioxide. So there's, there's this kind of like debate over whether the data says what we thought it said or what the authors of that original paper thought it said, because you can maybe get different results if you process the data in different ways. There's also the possibility that the data was maybe wrong to begin with. So people at the ALMA telescopes are actually reprocessing it to check that they didn't make any mistakes, which might have led to different results. So it's basically a lot of complex work and processing and maths going on. And, you know, there's not kind of one obvious solution that's going to be 100% correct. So that's as you say, there's obviously like a lot of uh, reanalysis, new analysis, scrutiny uh, of the of the process, which is, I mean, it's good in terms of like the way that science works and um, there should be rigorous evaluation of these types of things. But if we get to a stage where we work out if there is phosphine in Venus's clouds and there's some sort of consensus on this, does that mean that we can confirm that there might be life on Venus or signs of life on Venus? Not quite. So this is sort of the second part of the controversy is that even if we do, if we can confirm that, yes, there is phosphine gas in the clouds of Venus, there's then the question of whether this is actually a sign of life, um, which I alluded to at the top of the story with, you know, it could be caused by other things. So phosphine isn't exactly the first thing you might think of when you think like, oh, show me some evidence of life. It's a bit of an unusual indicator. So even if we can conclude it's there, we don't necessarily know what's caused it. And there are specific lab conditions that you can use to make phosphine, such as heating phosphoric acid to a really high temperature, which doesn't require anything biological. So it could be, even if we if we find out that, yes, there is phosphine present, 
there's just some weird geology going on on Venus that we don't know about that could produce it. And the authors of the original article do acknowledge this. Acknowledge this. So they say, even if confirmed, we emphasize that the de detection of PH3, which is phosphine, is not robust evidence for life, only for anomalous and unexplained chemistry. So we don't know how it would be created, if not by life. Life is one, one suggestion because we know there are biological processes that can result in it. But there's also other things that could happen. Um, and basically, we just don't know enough about Venus to make that call. Uh, so some people still think that the authors of the original paper were maybe being a little too hasty in their suggestion that the phosphine could indicate life. And of course, that's the story that everyone latched onto and grabbed and, and that grabbed the headlines because it is, you know, obviously a really exciting idea. Yeah, I mean, you go from there's aliens on Venus to there's maybe phosphine on Venus to there may be no phosphine on Venus. I mean, it's a huge, <laughs> it's a roller coaster of emotions, really. I mean, you know, should we should we be putting away the bunting for the alien welcome party then? Is that is it a game over for this entire idea of finding life or finding phosphine or finding anything on Venus? Not at all. I mean, you might be holding on to the bunting for quite a long time because I have a feeling that this is going to take a while to settle. I mean, as Matt said earlier, this is basically how the scientific method is supposed to work. This is science doing the right thing. You know, one group publishes their findings, others work to either support or refute them, gradually building up evidence and informing our knowledge on the topic. So it's not at all unusual that this is a topic of debate. It's not unusual that people are looking at this data again um, and trying to either, you know, find evidence that supports it or maybe refutes it. Um, so even if some results do turn out to be wrong in the end, the important thing is that, you know, every piece of work is scrutinised, both the original study and following studies, so that we can move forward with the best evidence that we have. And of course, even if the phosphine idea turns out to be a bit of a red herring, which we can't say at the moment, it wouldn't at all prove that there isn't life on Venus. It might just not be that that is the evidence for or against it. So, um, you know, I think... If you, if you want to hold on to that idea that maybe there is something else out there, I'm not going to dash your dreams just yet. There is one way to settle this. You mentioned earlier, Vicky, that we can't just go and hold a piece of litmus paper up, but we can if we send a spacecraft there, generally speaking. We, we can definitively prove this by going to Venus. Yeah, I mean, it would be much easier to investigate what is present in the clouds around Venus if we sent a spacecraft up there. We could take samples and collect much better evidence for the makeup of its environment than we can glean from telescope data down here on Earth. The litmus paper, paper analogy was just an analogy, by the way. I don't think you can test for phosphine that way. But, you know, it would be obviously be a lot easier if you could like go up and like actually kind of touch the gases and, and you know, take some samples from stuff up there we have been to venus in the past there's various kind of spacecrafts that have done flybys and um sent probes taken samples things like that but not for several decades now and obviously we've been very much focused on mars as sort of um one of our, our more potentially habitable planets in the solar system um so maybe this will spur greater interest in exploring venus um but of course spacecraft missions are hugely expensive and take a long time to develop so at the moment we can just work with what we've got and uh, i'm sure there's loads of astronomers and scientists out there doing the number crunching who will continue to add to 
this discussion and the evidence about what what we can say about Venus. It's fair to say that you don't just launch a mission into deep space on a whim, right? Or even into near space. There's quite a long waiting list. Once we've done a lot of investigating of Mars, then we're off to the moons of Saturn and Jupiter. So Venus might have to wait its turn unless a private company is willing to plough loads and loads of money into. I think there's a New Zealand-based firm called Rocket Labs, which is uh, trying to drum up a bit of interest into sending a private mission to Venus so that it could maybe uh, maybe state the claim to have found alien life for the first time. Podcast at wire.co.uk with your thoughts on that story or any of the other stories that we talked about on the podcast this week or just anything that's on your mind. Speaking of things that were on people's minds, a few of you emailed in last week to point out that the Y2K bug wasn't a hoax. Natasha simply misspoke, but thanks to Laura, Andrew, Dave, Robert, another Dave, and Colin, who all emailed in to correct the, the record. It's good to know that you're keeping an eye on everything that we say. Do send us emails, podcast at wired.co.uk. We love hearing from you, particularly if you're pointing out when we make inadvertent mistakes. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye.